Okay, we're here with another great episode. <laughs> another great episode of Meeting of the Minds with the great Dr. E. Michael Jones, author, theologian, doctor, professor, scholar, you name it, he's got it. <laughs> Dr. Jones, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Good to be here. Um, so I've seen a lot of your information, different places. I have your book, Libido Dominandi. I have, um, I'm getting ready to get the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Logos Rising. Very interesting stuff. Just a few questions for you I had. Um, sure. Taking it from the Logos, how would you best describe Logos to people? Logos is rationality, word, uh, speech, um, the order of the universe, uh, all of these things rolled up in one. Every, every word that we have in English that ends with the word ology is based on logos. So biology would be the, the science or the, the logos of life. Geology, the logos of stones or of the earth. Uh, you know, all the way, all the way along. That's that's why it's such an important word. That's right. You actually took my next question. I was going to bring that up about philosophy, physiology, and so on and so forth. It's all connected, right? So now, and then, and then at, a, at a crucial point in history, uh, Saint John took over the word logos and used it at the beginning of the gospel. So yeah. the beginning of the gospel, of Saint John is in arche in ha logos. Kai logos en prostheon, kai logos en theos. And that means that beginning. the last, take the last, in the beginning there was logos. There's never been a time when there wasn't logos. And logos is with God and logos is God. And yep. so after contemplating that, those three sentences for about three centuries, the church came up with the notion of the Trinity, uh, but also, uh, codified the extension of the Greek term from physics to into theology. That was a, a big transition. And it was so important uh, in terms of human history that for the next thousand years, pretty much everyone just did theology. This is what I discuss in the book. All right, excellent. Excellent. Are there, are there any big misunderstandings people get when they start applying the word logos to what they think it might mean, but that's not actually what it means? Do you ever see that? Well, I'm I'm engaged uh, periodically now with uh, the Orthodox who uh, have a different understanding of the Trinity, and uh, that tradition developed differently in the East than it did in the West. And I do not cover that in the book, but I mean, uh, if you're talking about uh, Palamas, you're talking about the Neoplatonic tradition, uh, and I, I simply don't cover it in the book. So they have a different understanding of Logos. There are also, um, I'm dealing with uh, Protestants as well, who have an idea of sola scriptura, which they got from Luther. And uh, these people want to limit the word logos, and they don't like the fact that it existed long before St. John used it. They want to basically exclude the entire tradition of Greek philosophy from their understanding of the word logos. So I, I'm trying to expand uh, the meaning here. I'm trying to ma make it a, 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 an all-inclusive term, uh, not that it means anything we want it to mean, but th that will include all of those meanings, uh, because we need that kind of richness in order to deal with the world that we live in. 
because if we don't, we end up with a, a substitute for logos. And the main substitute for logos in human history has been called science. And science has become absolutely tyrannical, uh, largely because of the, the lack of influence that the church has. So now we're treated to the coronavirus pandemic. And if some guy walks on and says, I'm a scientist, that's the end of the discussion. Now we have to say, oh, you, you're a scientist. You have possession of ultimate reality. Everything we, you say is true. And I can't say a damn thing in response. So we're noticing now that uh, somebody like Donald Trump is in the middle in this discussion. He was elected by the people. He is certainly not a scientist, but he has to make up his mind uh, when he hears competing claims from competing scientists. Well, how do you do that? If science is the last word in every discussion, what happens when you have two scientists who contradict each other, which is exactly what we have now? We have a guy named uh, Witkowski, Knut Witkowski, who's in uh, Manhattan now, German guy, who says it's the same. It's, it's going to be the same as other uh, epidemics. It'll rise and it'll fall, take care of itself. We have Anthony Fauci, who's the mouth of big pharma, saying we have to develop a vaccine. Everybody's going to have to get a vaccine, blah, blah, blah. I'm saying we all know now that you need what, what I'm calling logos, or reason to adjudicate these competing claims. There's no way around it. You're never going to get a situation where every single scientist in the world is going to agree on something. And that means you have to have something that will evaluate science. And that's what Logos is. And that would be, so that would be mainly theology, that you would always look at science through the Catholic lens. No, that is no, it's no, no, it's not theology. No. It's okay. reason. reason. You, I mean, we're talking about something that has... First of all, there are virtually no theological implications here for the coronavirus. The fact is that the churches have been shut down. Okay, that leads to a, a state church conflict, but there are no theological con conflicts here. We have to look at the arguments that the people are making, and we have to make judgments according to reason. There's no science. It's not anything particular. We know that this guy, we intuitively know this guy makes sense. This guy doesn't. This guy seems to have a hidden agenda. This guy doesn't. It's, how do we know that? Because of Logos. That's what it is. We have reason. And I'm saying that, uh, again, I got in trouble for saying this before, but I'm saying representative government is based on Logos. This, so everybody gets upset. What do you mean by that? Blah, blah, blah. Well, John Adams said we have no uh, constitution that functions in the absence of a moral people. Morality is Logos. Morality is practical reason. You have to have a moral people because they're the only people who can make sound judgments. So to give a, 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 a current example, the attorney general of the state of Michigan is a lesbian. That means she is not in the business of making sound judgments. If she made a sound judgment, she wouldn't be a lesbian. If, if she understood the reality, if, he, if she understood the logos of human sexuality, she would understand that the purpose is procreation. Well, lesbians do not engage in procreative activity, so therefore they are engaging in irrational behavior. She has made a life out of uh, the. She has made irrationality the basis of her life. So don't expect her to make prudent decisions when it comes to implementing this lockdown on on the coronavirus. 
Michigan is one of the worst states in the in the country because they ban, uh, you know, you can, they, they got into the business of trying to define what is essential and what is not essential and made a mess of it. Would, would, um, but then could we say that about people just in general, because we all in a certain way live a hypocritical life or we, we make, we're, we're not in accordance with the morals and values as we know they should be. Or is it that deeper because that's more of a lifestyle decision? Like she's basing her lifestyle on that. Yes. There's a difference here. Okay. I mean, we all sin and we all fall. And then the, the smarter of us uh, realize we've done something wrong and we say, I'm sorry. And then we try not to do that again. Now, there are people or, or the church institutionalizes in confession. You go to confession, you confess your sins. OK, but there are people who uh, either uh, through lack of uh, perseverance or bad will uh, capitulate to their vices. And right. you know they've capitulated to their vices when they start talking about them as if they're virtues. That's and one of the main groups doing this is the homosexual in our day. That has gone from basically being a, an unmentionable vice to being the, the noblest thing that anybody can be. Uh, homosexuals are now the ideal citizen of the United States of America because they engage in transient sexual, uh, transient sterile relationships which the oligarchs love. The oligarchs love that kind of stuff because these people are easy to manage. And that's the gist of my book, uh, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. So if you vote for some, if you put one, someone like that in office, don't be surprised that you're subjected to irrationality because the basis of this woman's identity is irrationality. Yes, that, make, that makes sense. I was about so um, St. Pius X, his document Pascendi on modernism, and basically how it's the mind unhooking from reality. So basically a detachment from logos, right? And embracing agnosticism, immanentism, all the other isms, right? Um, what, what would be some small steps that people can take to return to logos, to reason, to order? I mean, obviously we do want people to be Catholic, right? But like you said, there, there is also a natural element of this, of in terms of embracing um, reason, are there any steps you've seen that are more successful than others in helping people that are on the far left? Yes. Small steps, yeah. First, first of all, you have to be honest about your situation. And so I think this happened uh, in the fall. There were a group of uh, young men who woke up to the fact that they were addicted to pornography. They were powerless. This is similar to the 12-step program. Because the first step of this 12-step program is to admit you were powerless over alcohol. So you wake up and you realize, I'm powerless. I'm addicted. I, I had this vice controls my life. Well, that's the first step uh, when you recognize that. And then the second step is, well, what am I going to do about it? And at that point, I mean, some people have told me that they just read Libido Dominandi and it cured them. Because they suddenly understood what was really going on. I mean, this, this consciousness is the prelude to any effective action. You have to understand the situation before you can act. Prudence is nothing more than knowing the truth and then acting on it. So you have to know reality. You have to get in contact with reality. And then you have to recognize your own uh, powerlessness that got you into this mess. 
And then you have to say, well, how am I going to get out of it? Maybe just recognizing that I'm addicted doesn't help. And this is why uh, Jesus Christ founded the Catholic Church, because it's a source of grace, and grace means supernatural help. In other words, we let's face it, the human race uh, is stuck in sin. It's been stuck in sin ever since Adam ate the apple. And part of that consciousness is, I can't solve this problem. And not only I can't solve it, my entire culture can't solve it. This is the essence of Greek tragedy. If you listen to those plays, or watch those plays, the, the story is pretty much always the same. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. You're always going to be stuck in the consequences of your sin. Well, Jesus Christ is called the Redeemer because he breaks out of, he can allow you to break out of that cycle. So the practical thing that I've told people, if they ask me a practical question, I'll give them a practical answer. Yeah. Uh, are you baptized? If not, get baptized. If you are, go back to the church because that's the institution that the Logos incarnate created so that your life can be congruous, congruent with Logos. Sadly, though, even in the church, with being infected by modernism, we have a lot of people that are purporting, they're saying they're teaching the truth, the traditional Catholic faith, but they're actually not. And then people use that as a justification for, well, I am following the Catholic Church because my individual priest says this. So sometimes we have the priests that are detached from Logos themselves. I'm sure you see that. Yes, that's. I got started in this business almost 40 years ago with a magazine called Fidelity that was basically looking into the sexual corruption of the Catholic Church in America and how that happened. So I've written a lot of books on that. Libido Dominandi is one of them. John Cardinal Kroll and the Cultural Revolution is another one. Uh, all these articles in Fidelity and Culture Wars about the sexual corruption in the church uh, tried to explain how this had a devastating effect on the Catholic population and on the ability of the church to deal with the culture, which is a predatory culture. And the fact that the, uh, uh, I just saw a, a, an article, we, we've pr reprinted uh, Father Darius Oko's, the Polish priest critique of the uh, Catholic church and the homosexual movement. He says 30% of the Jesuits are homosexuals. I don't know whether that's the case, but it's obvious that the, Jesuit order in America is a fifth column now within the Catholic Church, which is promoting the oligarchic understanding of reality and not the church's teaching. All you have to do is read America magazine and you'll see this constant pleading. That's a serious problem. I don't know how it's going to be resolved. These people like a, a guy like James Martin, a Jesuit associated with America magazine, promotes homosexuality with impunity. And he apparently has, you know, can get an audience with the Pope uh, that bishops can't get because he's a Jesuit and Pope's a Jesuit. So it's a problem. Uh, but there's never been a time when the church has not had problems. This is the particular problem of our age, and we have to deal with it. How do you think, um, going back to what you said before about Protestants and Orthodox rejecting Logos, why do you think they they want to do that, or maybe they don't want to do that. Are they consciously doing it, unconsciously? Is it specifically to separate from the church? What do you What do you think with that? Uh, well, first, first of all, yeah, it, it is an identity issue. Oftentimes, you define yourself as the opposite of 
something you don't like. And this is precisely what Luther did when he broke with the Catholic Church. And when he broke with the Catholic Church, Luther became a, a raging opponent of Logos. He hated Logos. It wasn't his thesis on or dissertation against Thomism or the scholastics? He was, he was trained in the nominalist school, yeah. uh, which was uh, founded by William of Ockham, right. uh, an Englishman. I was actually in Munich. He ended up in Germany, uh, in Munich, actually, and he died there during the plague uh, in the 14, middle of the 14th century. And uh, actually, I had uh, dinner at the restaurant that is now built out of the building, the Franciscan monastery where he died. Probably not very appetizing thought to think that he died of the Black Death there where you're eating dinner. But that was the case. So Ockham ended up in Germany and uh, he had a huge influence on Germany. Uh, and Luther was part of that influence. And what you saw during this period of time, I told you before that for a thousand years, Everybody just talked about theology uh, and there was bound to be a reaction. And the reaction was science, uh, largely because of the Reformation and largely because of Luther. In other words, Luther had a, a super uh, kind of piety that was based on a hatred of reason. Uh, this is not Catholic. Obviously, he wasn't Catholic. It, it was based on his own uh, personal life, which was basically uh, caused by the fact that he was a man who could not control his passions. He was, uh, for, uh, he was angry. Uh, he couldn't control his anger. He couldn't, he was, he, he drank a lot. He ate a lot and he couldn't control his sexual passions either. So he ended up eventually running off and marrying, actually he didn't run off, but the, the nun, uh, an ex nun who got broken out of a convent, uh, by Luther's boys, uh, who would then offer the good-looking nuns to local priests and archbishops if they would become part of the Lutheran party. I mean, people, I, I, I accused Luther of being a pimp, and people got upset about that, but th that's precisely what he did. I don't know whether money changed hands. I suppose money would have to change hands in order to be a pimp. But he did offer a good-looking nun to the Archbishop of Mainz if the Archbishop would become a, a Protestant like him. So this was a had a devastating uh, effect on the Catholic the, un the Catholic unity of uh, faith and reason, which Aquinas had established a hundred years before Occam, and then was simply forgotten. Aquinas was a forgotten guy, and it was that simple. And Luther was influenced by William of Occam. He was influenced by nominalism, and what what uh, came about after Luther with, with the religious wars was a, a, a kind of pious but personal devotion called the Devotio Moderna, which had elements of irrationality. Faith became something that was irrational rather than super-rational. But on the other side, you had uh, the rise of science because there were large numbers of people now who were just sick to death of religious controversy. They thought that scholasticism had just come down to hair splitting and it was meaningless. And they wanted to talk about the real world because it needed to be talked about talked about so you're talking about people like copernicus and galileo all the way up uh to isaac newton uh, uh called the scientific revolution it was anti-church it was anti-religious even though these people were all except for uh, newton practicing catholics uh and it had a devastating effect on the development of Logos, because what happened here at this point was religion 
was something that made you feel good, but it wasn't real. And science was real, but it just gave you a very bleak picture of the world, you know, like all these balls, dust, cosmic motions, and nothing human about it. Yeah. Would it be accurate to say that the Thomism and the scholastics would be like congruent with Logos and then a detachment, uh, like too much of a deviation from Thomism and the scholastics would unhook you from the Logos? Well, I mean, it, it, it got, you can, anybody can abuse uh, what is a good institution. And I think that there were abuses, late scholasticism. I mean, Occam himself <clears throat> was a late scholastic. You could say he was a late scholastic and there, he was certainly an abuse. Uh, nominalism was an abuse of this. And as a result, people got tired of it. And so it went into eclipse. Uh, there was a, a, a revival of Thomism uh, during the Reformation under Suarez and then it collapsed again. And by the time of the French Revolution, the, the high noon of the Enlightenment, nobody knew about it again. And then it came back again. And I discussed this in the book with the, um, the, when the magazine Civiltà Cattolica was created after, in the aftermath of the Revolution of 1848, a whole group of Thomists gathered together. And one of them was the man who had become Pope Leo XIII, and he was the man who brought it back with a vengeance uh, with his encyclical Eterni Patris. And that made Thomism uh, the official philosophy of the Catholic Church. Huge comeback in terms of the Catholic Church. Right at the time of modernism, it was there, <clears throat> in many ways, it was there to deal with modernism. <clears throat> that would be a good way. That would be one of the ways to get back to Logos, kind of reading the scholastics and, and Thomas. Right. But okay. again, nothing yeah. stays constant. And so there was a reaction against uh, Thomism as well. I discussed this in my book. And the main reason there was a reaction against Thomism and the main reason we had such a thing as modernism is because Thomism can be very ahistorical. Right. So what do I mean by ahistorical? I mean, talking about abstractions that uh, as if they don't exist in the real world. So I just did a, a, a little podcast on Father White, the Dominican, talking about, again, the coronavirus. And he's talking about the state. The state has a duty to protect its citizens. The state must follow science when it comes to medicine. So therefore, the state has a duty to impose quarantine. Well, OK, that's nice that you said that. But that doesn't get to the heart of the matter because you're using abstractions like the state and science that need to be contextualized right now. So, for example, we who speaks for the state now? Is it, is it Anthony Fauci or is it Donald Trump? And who speaks for science? I mean, we, we talked about this at the beginning, beginning of our interview here. You know, in other words, it's all of the worst aspects of this ahistorical Thomism that I talked about in this article uh, that this Dominican wrote. I mean, the Dominicans, uh, you know, are their Aquinas's order. But it, he's talking as if there were no problems with that. I'm not, de I'm not denying anything that uh, Pope uh, Leo XIII said in Eterni Patris. I'm saying this had to develop. And the fact that it didn't develop led to the collapse of Thomism uh, at Vatican II. Basically, what you saw was an anti-Thomist reaction at Vatican II by people who were, if they weren't modernists, they were inspired by the modernists. 
because the modernists were taking history seriously. And as Christians, guess what? We have to take history seriously because Jesus Christ was born into history. The incarnation is a historical fact. And so therefore, the man who did take it seriously was St. Augustine. The first, uh, Dawson says he's the first man who understood time. Uh, and that's part of what we're talking about. So it's, there's always been this, not as if the church never took history seriously. We need to bring to some type of uh, meeting of the minds here between the Aristotelian uh, certainty that you get with metaphysics and the historical reality that Christianity brought into the world with the incarnation. We've got to bring them together. That's, that's great. And that makes a lot of sense. And now, didn't at the at the Second Vatican Council, a lot of people called themselves like transcendental Thomists, almost like Thomas in Aquinas, uh, Thomas in dialogue with Hume or with Kant and with their philosophies. But didn't it mer didn't it make things more muddy than than helpful? Well, there are, certainly there are people who say that. Lonergan's uh, Thomism was transcendental Thomism. It was an attempt to resolve the issue with Kant. I don't think it was successful. There ended up being three Thomisms by the time of by the 1950s, and they were fighting with each other. And the result was they were defeated uh, in battle. The defeat took place at the University of Notre Dame, uh, which is not surprising. Um, but uh, I described this in the book. Um, it, it wasn't intellectual defeat. It was basically uh, a group of people using science as a club to beat anybody that disagreed with them into submission. The man who did this responsible for this wicked act was a, an Irish priest by the name of Erna McMullen. He's dead now. I knew him. I, I met him uh, when I arrived here as a professor at St. Mary's. Uh, he was a man who, would, who was good at uh, shutting you up in arguments by giving you the impression that he was in contact with ultimate reality. And why did he feel he was in contact with ultimate reality? Well, because he had studied with Erwin Schrödinger. Nuclear physics was Erwin Schrödinger in Dublin in the 50s. Well, now we're back at that same old story. Oh, 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 you're a scientist. I guess I just better shut up and then do what you tell me. McMullen had a, a, a sophisticated version of that uh, trick dog and pony show. And he imposed it on Notre Dame by becoming chairman of the theology, uh, I'm sorry, the philosophy department and wrecking Thomism there. All right. And OK. And now what I was thinking also is now what happens when we reject the logos? Maybe this leads right into the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Um, what happens then when the when the mind unhooks from the logos? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's that is the reason I. The reason I wrote the Logos book is because I had written the Jewish revolutionary spirit before it. And the reason I needed, uh, I needed Logos to make sense of what a Jew was. I could not have written the Jewish revolutionary spirit without the word Logos. Could not have done it because I, otherwise I could not define the Jew. You cannot ask a Jew what a Jew is because he'll always tell you something that will confuse you. Yeah. Uh, so if he will use, it's a racial term. Is it a religious term? Well, it depends on what's what's what position he can use to his advantage. It's like the shell game. You know, whenever you point to one shell, it always turns up. It's under the other shell. 
So my de- so the beginning of the Jewish revolutionary spirit goes to the time when Jesus Christ arrives on this earth, and the Jews, uh, they have to decide uh, whether to accept him on his own terms or the as the Messiah or not. And so the Jews who accepted him are known as the Catholic Church. The Jews who rejected him are known as Jews to this day. And that term becomes pejorative in the Gospel of St. John. If you read it, Jew is a pejorative term. It's mentioned 71 times. 70 times is pejorative. Right. right so yeah. the Jews, by, by rejecting Jesus Christ, they rejected the Logos, the Logos incarnate. And when you reject the Logos, you reject the order of the universe. And when you reject the order of the universe, you become a revolutionary. And that's what Jews have been ever since. From the time of uh, Simon Bar Kokhba and uh, Masada all the way up to the present, the book ends with the neoconservative takeover of uh, America's foreign policy and the war in Iraq. So there's a constant theme. And I, I think... I think I've discovered something that is a, an actual uh, category of reality. This just isn't part of my mind here. I mean, certainly Logos is certainly not a part of my mind. It's a category of reality. But the Jewish revolutionary spirit is as well. And I've just been doing research into uh, the whole question of the Armenian genocide uh, because I'm scheduled to go to Armenia, and I'm, I'm writing a piece on that right now. But the current state of this uh, is basically... Uh, of that question is Armenians pointing their fingers at the Turks and the Turks pointing their fingers at the Armenians. And we have a kind of standoff at this point with the Armenians with having the edge uh, uh, winning at this point. What both of these groups have in common, the real story of what happened in Armenia is the Jewish revolutionary spirit, because all of the the Armenians as well, uh, the, the, uh, all the groups involved here, the 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 uh, the committee for unity and progress the young turks the armenians and the russians as well all had become revolutionaries uh, the, the 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 problem here was a battle between revolutionary groups the dashnaks and the hunchaks were the armenian revolutionary groups the young turks the committee for uh, unity and progress and also groups they all got their ideas from naradnaya volia which was the Russian, basically Jewish revolutionary movement that had broken away from the traditional assembly volia and created their own terrorist organization. This is incomprehensible, I'm saying, unless you understand the Jewish revolutionary spirit, which is why that's an important concept. Yeah, and a lot of times when I think about how do I explain this to people, because it is a sensitive topic, right? So I think about is it helpful or harmful to make distinctions in terms of Okay, maybe you use the, maybe the word Hebrew for people who are from the seed of Abraham, and Jew maybe those people who accept the Jewish law, whether it be Orthodox, conservative, Reformed. Um, this way, then you don't put off people that maybe I don't put off people who are culturally Jewish but not actually embracing the faith, and and also for people who might have been Jewish converts to Catholicism. Does that help making a distinction, or does that cloud the waters a little bit? I think we have to be we have to be able to use the word Jew. Yeah. We cannot we cannot get around it. Okay? Right. Because because that's a category of reality and that's the word St. John used. Right. That's St. John did not use any uh, uh right. euphemisms or obfuscations here. But there is a distinction that we have to make. If, right. if, so so for example in the Gospel of St. John uh, 
He writes, uh, the parents of the man born blind refused to speak out of fear of the Jews right. because the Jews threatened to expel from the synagogue anyone who said that Jesus was the Messiah. Right. Well, the parents of the man born blind, they were Jews too, weren't they? I mean, they're, it's the same ethnic group. Well, there seems to be a distinction here. And the distinction is that the word Jew at this point now means rejecter of Christ. Right. If right. you're talking about the Jews who didn't reject Jesus Christ, they're called Christians. Of course, that word didn't exist then either. Right. That didn't come into ex to existence until centuries later. So it's basically the Jews who accepted Jesus Christ are known as his followers. The Jews who rejected him are known as Jews. And we have to be able to make that distinction. So the question then comes, what does, what does St. Paul say? The Jews are the people that killed Christ and they are enemies of the entire human race. He's talking about the Jewish people. Now, the, Jew, the, the Jewish people here, the Jewish people, I think that's exactly what he says. He's not, so right, St. Paul's not speaking about uh, Jews who converted to Christianity, right, who's followed Christ, nor is he, re nor is he referring to maybe uh, born Jews who then maybe left Judaism and embraced paganism. He's speaking about the people who maintain Judaism, the law, who've rejected Christ, right? <laughs> He's talking about the Jewish people. What do we mean by the Jewish people? Yeah. That, that's, that's, a political, that's a political entity. It's an organization. It's an organized group of people. At that point, uh, at the time of Christ, the leaders of the Jewish people belonged to a group called the Sanhedrin. They were the leaders. And there are some people who want to say, well, it was only the leaders who killed Christ. That's not what, that's not what the gospel says. And the other point here is you can only be a leader if you have followers. So if you put the leaders and the followers together, you come up with the Jewish people. And the Jewish people with one voice said, crucify him. Right. And they also said his blood be on us and our children. Now, does that mean every Jew in Jerusalem said crucify him? No. The Blessed Mother uh, belonged to that group, uh, at least in, ter in terms of biological inheritance, and she did not yell crucify him. So the Jewish people is a political entity that is mobilized by certain people for certain political purposes. And they are the people who are responsible for the death of Christ. And their legacy continues to this day. It's not as if there's no Jewish people anymore. Uh, as I said before, they, they, you know, every year the German government writes a check of reparations payments. And I guarantee you that check gets cashed. <laughs> You know, and the person who's cashing it, the group is cashing it, is the Jewish people. Does that mean every Jew gets a cut? No, of course not. This is the whole point of Norman Finkelstein's book, The, the Holocaust Industry. This is the big Jews uh, divvying up the money among themselves, and the Jews, like Finkelstein's parents, who were actually in concentration camps, don't get anything. Yeah. And now, I guess it becomes difficult because now you have a lot of maybe leaders or people in positions of power, they're atheists, but they still consider themselves to be Jewish, right? Right, you don't, you don't have to be religious in order to be Jewish. You know, they used to say, you don't have to be Jewish to like Levy's rye bread. Well, you don't have to be religious because I'm, uh, if you follow my definition, what is, what is the definition of a Jew? He's a rejecter of Logos. Rejection of Logos takes many forms. You can have the orthodox rejection of Logos in the Talmud by following the Talmud, 
which is full of blasphemies and attacks on Christ and was basically written after hundreds of years after the gospel to keep Jews from converting. Or you can have atheist Jews who don't believe in God, like Sigmund Freud right. uh, or uh, people like that. In other words, what is what is the common denominator between you know, Sigmund Freud and, and the Rab the Beard in, in Brooklyn? Well, it's rejection of Logos. They do it in different ways, but that's what unites them as Jews. But and they also share that kind of like cultural lineage because you could have a Muslim now or a Hindu or a Muslim, they reject the logos too, but they're not culturally Jewish, right? I know, first of all, the, the Hindus do not reject do not reject the logos. They don't know who he is. You know, the Saint Francis uh, Xavier showed up in Goa uh, and tried to uh, convert the Indians and threw up his hands and left, <laughs> thinking it was a hopeless task. Uh, the Muslims, uh, I would not say they reject Logos. I would say they don't understand. They don't understand the Logos because of the circumstances of their the creation of Islam. Islam was created by uh, a, a tribe in the center of Arabia who uh, had no written language, uh, could not uh, read the Bible because it was it was only in uh, uh, what's the what's the prayer what's the language I'm thinking Syriac the the Bible had been translated into Syriac which was spoken on the the coastline the Hejaz but it hadn't penetrated to the interior and so when Islam spread uh, for example when it spread to Persia the Persians were familiar with Christianity but only uh, Nestorianism. So they didn't understand the Trinity. So all of these factors taken together create a situation in which it's not so much rejection as lack of understanding uh, that characterizes this group of people, not the rejection of the Jews. There's none of those people were there at the time of the crucifixion doing things like yelling out, crucify him. Right. I guess I only think, well, then what about like modern Jews? They weren't there during the crucifixion either. So they don't really understand it themselves, maybe, or no? Some of them don't. Some of them do. Sarah, you go to Sarah Silverman. The, she's supposed to be a comedian. And she said, I, of course, the Jews killed Christ. I do it in a minute. I do it all over again. Well, that's a, an extreme form uh, or a explicit form of the rejection that Jews accept implicitly. Uh by their very by the fact that they are Jews. Okay, and then the other thing I always think about, and I wrote you this I wrote you this question before about um the the Jewish connection to Protestantism. And then I also thought about to Arianism. I'm thinking, are is there some um, Jewish element behind a lot of the major heresies? Church? Yes. Yeah. Rabbi Louis Israel Neumann wrote a book on that. He said that uh, the Jews were behind every single. I think he called them progressive movement in European history. What he meant by progressive movement was heresy, what the church would call heresy. So I, there's a long chapter in the uh, Jewish revolutionary spirit on the Hussite rebellion. The Hussite rebellion was like a dress rehearsal for the Reformation. Uh, Thomas Munzer went there to pick up tactics and so on and so forth. It happened 100 years before the Reformation, and it happened in Prague, and the Jews, Prague was always a Jewish city, and the Jews were heavily involved in promoting this rebellion because they promoted every rebellion uh, against the Catholic Church. If it, if it happened, they would invariably come to its support. 
This happened in the French Revolution. It was suppressed, but I mean, there was the Simonini letter. Uh, Barrowell suppressed it, but uh, it was involved there as well. Okay, so it's almost like any time there was a rebellion against the church, whatever it might be, like an enemy of an enemy is my friend, so they support one another. Say, like that, that, was it, Say that again. You cut out uh, in the middle of your sentence. So it seems like whenever there's a, a progressive idea, a rebellion, it might be that the Jewish people might also come to their aid because an enemy of an enemy is my friend. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's what pretty much what Rabbi Louis Israel Neumann said. That's pretty much what he said. Okay, so so during like the Protestant Revolution, it would be that then the Protestants would help the Jews and the Jews would help the Protestants. Were they working together or is it more still operating separately in that regard? They, if you're talking about Luther, Luther got no help from the Jews, none whatsoever. He didn't like Jews. He thought that they would convert to Christianity as soon as they uh, heard him preach the gospel. When he didn't, he got very angry at them and wrote a very intemperate letter about the Jews at the end of his life that the Lutherans have been apologizing for ever since. Uh, that was Luther, uh, but it changed with Calvin. <clears throat> Calvin took Lutheran theology, and he was a lawyer, and so he kind of came up with a legal codification of Lutheran theology. Uh, he was studying, it claimed, there were people who claimed at the time that he was studying with a Jew from Winterthur in Switzerland. There are some people who say that in order to throw people off the track, he had met Michael Servetus burned at the stake in order to make sure, because Servetus was a Unitarian, and the main Unitarian group at that time was the Jews. And so he wanted to distance himself from that group to, in order to prefer, preserve his credibility. The main... <clears throat> The main accommodation came in the area of usury. So it, over a period of time, you had Philo-Jewish, Philo-Semitic sects like the Puritans taking over in England. Uh, they uh, were interested in getting involved in usury because usury was a Jewish monopoly. This happened more in uh, Holland uh, where the, the, uh, these Judaizing sects, the pilgrims, went to Holland, and most of them became Jews. It was that simple. They became circumcised, they became Jews, and after they became Jews, they became involved in uh, Dutch banking, and Dutch banking played a major role in the development of capitalism. The De Wisselbank in Amsterdam was um, the, one of the first places to use paper money. Uh, so this this is how it developed, uh, and it developed along those lines in America as well, because we got a lot of these Judaizing uh, heretics, Judaizing Protestant sects like the Puritans and the Pilgrims who came over to Boston and started their operation there. Uh, so we always had in this country a kind of congenital weakness for this type of behavior. And it manifested itself at the beginning of the country, uh, this ambivalence uh, with a figure like Alexander Hamilton. He was uh, an illegitimate child from the uh, Caribbean, uh, may have had Jewish parentage, heritage or not, it's hard to tell. And so he wrote two crucial letters. One is the letter on manufacturing, which got it right. 
and set America on the right course of being a manufacturing nation, which meant it was going to erect tariffs to protect itself from predatory English free trade. But he then wrote a letter on banking, which then got the country involved in usury. And that conflict is basically the heart of my book, Barren Metal. There are two options in life, in economic life. It's labor is the source of all value, which is the Catholic option. And then there's the Jewish option, which is basically articulated by Shylock in The Merchant of Venice when he says, my ducats can copulate faster than Laban's use and rams. What he's talking about is lending money, usury, compound interest. Those are the two competing forces in American history. And uh, they rise and fall. And right now we are at the final stage of one of the most vicious cycles of usury in American history. It began with Paul Volcker taking over the Fed in 1950, uh, 1978, striking down usury laws, 79, I mean, striking down usury laws uh, across the country by raising T-bill interest rates to 20%. And that led to the rise, to the concentration of wealth into fewer and fewer hands over this period of time to the point where with the election of Donald Trump, you had three rich Jews determining American foreign policy. Sheldon Adelson, Bernard Marcus, and Paul Singer told Donald Trump to tear up the nuclear agreement, and that's what he did, led to war, We're still on the brink of war with Iran now as a result of that concentration of wealth into those few hands. Okay. And now, and now how about the connection between Judaism and Freemasonry? Because I heard St. Maximilian Kolbe saying the elders of Zion being behind it and I've heard of the Benai Barith. I don't know as much about that, but anything that you've seen in your studies on that, the connection to yeah, Freemasonry? B'nai Brith is the Jewish Masonic Lodge. And uh, one of the avowed purposes of B'nai Brith is to promote the writings of Sigmund Freud. So uh, during this period of time, uh, to get back, I cover this in uh, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and in Baron Metal. They're kind of companion pieces because the Jewish revolutionary spirit deals with the revolutionary and the Baron metal deals with the, the big Jew who funded the revolutionary. So like the Rothschilds, Jacob Schiff, people like that. Um, and so at the beginning, the, the Whig, after the glorious revolution, uh, the Whig party consolidates its power by taking over the Masonic lodges and weaponizes them and turns them into an instrument of English foreign policy, whose goal is to overturn the House of Bourbon. Now, the English tried to spread Masonic lodges all throughout the continent. Uh, they were successful in establishing them in France and in uh, Holland, uh, Belgium, where they were used as propaganda outlets uh, to attack the uh, the king of France, also to spread pornography and subversive literature. And then they tried to spread them to Germany, uh, places like Hamburg. Hamburg has always been an English colony in Germany because it's a seaport and they deal with, you know, the trade, ocean trade. And uh, when they set up the um, Masonic Lodge in Germany, the Germans said, no Jews. And at this point, the English revoked their license. You had to admit Jews. And at this point, the natural Jew, we've already talked about the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Uh, before 
uh, Freemasonry. Now it, it starts to meld with Freemasonry and you have certain groups uh, playing a big role. The Masonic lodges played a huge role in the over in the revolution of 1908 in Turkey uh, because uh, there were Jews, there were Donme, who were the followers of uh, Shabbatai Zivi. I have a chapter on him in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And all of these revolutionary elements came together in Masonic lodges. They were the locus of Masonic activity at the beginning of the 20th century in Turkey, and they played a huge role in the overthrow of the government there. Right. Did, didn't the Masons have a big role in overthrowing pretty much all the governments in the, from like the late 1700s to the early 1900s? No. Well, no. I mean, if, if you, uh, America was basically run by Freemasons. So right. it never over, it was the government in America. Right. Most yeah. of the founding fathers were Freemasons. So in a sense, it, it overthrew the, uh, uh, the British hegemony over their colony. Uh, as a result, as a result of America, uh, Freemasonry had a, played a huge role in South America, uh, especially in Mexico during that revolution. A very a violent, violent revolution during the 1920s in Mexico, where people like Plutarco Calles were persecuting the Catholic Church and also becoming Mexico City became a safe haven for revolutionaries like Trotsky. Leon Trotsky ended up in Mexico, so it it. It was perfectly congruent with communism, Marxism, revolution, all of those things, the Jewish revolutionary spirit down there in a way that was not the case in North America. It was not the case, not that case in North America because the, the Masons were in many, many ways the ruling class in North America. Okay. Yeah, now, cause I, so I run different groups, um, different uh, the militia Maculata in New Jersey. I also have a group in the Archdiocese of New York. Um, you know, groups of relatively young people. We talk about a lot of things and I try to give them as much of the truth as I possibly can and sharing information. And a lot of this being, you know, d difficult, more controversial things they're not exposed to. What would you recommend is the best way to introduce them to some of these things like step by step? So it's not just like a door in the face. <laughs> the Jewish revolutionary spirit. You should read the Jewish revolutionary spirit. It will change their minds. Read Baron Metal. These will give these will give these people read Logos Rising. So what is it? Jewish revolutionary spirit is history. That is the history of the world, basically, as the conflict between Logos and anti-Logos from that perspective. Baron Metal is a history of economics. Libido Dominandi is a history of modern psychology. Uh, Logos Rising is a history of philosophy. This, this will, you can't get this education anymore at universities, not Catholic universities, at no university. Universities are a disaster. Yeah. Uh, you can only get it from books like this. And so what you should do is organize reading groups and say, okay, today, this week, we're going to read this chapter from the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Read the beginning and you will establish the principle. This is not anti-Semitism. This is something Jews. This is something Jews don't want you to know. This is something Jews don't want you to talk about. And when they have something they don't want you to talk about, and you talk about it, they call you an anti-Semite. But that's part of the problem. That's why Catholics are stupid now because they have no education. They have no background. And when someone tells them, calls them a, a bad word, they shut up and they start apologizing. Right. Do you think it's important that we address that right away and we say, we make a distinction what anti-Semitism really is versus what it's not? 
Like to speak about history and to speak about a group, knowing the Jews, they are a group of people, just like any other group that, that have done things wrong, right? Any group has done things wrong. So just because we're talking about history doesn't make you anti-Semitic right off no. the bat. No, and it's important. The whole battle last year, the year 2019, was the battle over the Internet. And the battle over the Internet revolved around hate speech. Hate speech is a concept that was created by the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which has its headquarters in Manhattan. Okay, it's a Jewish fiction that was created to shut you up whenever you criticize a Jew. I mean, it's more it's a money laundering operation. It took money from criminals and used it to get exonerate them. Jeffrey Epstein, classic example. He got the sweetheart deal from a, a, a lawyer, a Jewish lawyer in Florida who was then given an award by the ADL for giving Jeffrey Epstein a sweetheart deal. Catholics have got to stop being stupid. I mean, stupidity is not a Catholic virtue. I guarantee you that's, but we have Catholics who make themselves stupid because they refuse to educate themselves. And they think, well, I got a, I got a bachelor's degree from God knows where. Well, who cares? University degrees are worthless. The, the education you get there is, in this respect, in the respect that I'm talking about, like real history, real philosophy, real psychology, right. it's worthless. You can't get an education there. Real history, can't get it. That makes a lot of sense to me. Who would be some other authors too? Because obviously, of course, yourself will definitely you know, tell our viewers to check out your books, read them. Who are some other good people that you would trust that, that have put out information, whether it be more recently or even in the past, past authors? Christopher Dawson uh, was, a, uh, in many ways, my model for the uh, Logos book, a man who wrote meta-histories, I mean, big-picture histories. Uh, he came to Chauncey Stillman, the uh, great New York Catholic uh, philanthropist, got him an endowed chair at Harvard, came here during the 50s when people took these ideas seriously. Uh, you need to know your history. You know, there's a whole history we could talk about of New York Catholicism, which is in many ways a sad story, but that's one of the good parts of it. Chauncey Stillman was one of the good parts of it. Uh, yeah. What we're talking about, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know your own history? Or do you just, do you internalize the commands of your oppressors? You know, I mean, I've said this before, but I was, there was a story, I did an article on Harley Davidson and motorcycles and Tells Angels. And the story there was that there was a biker rally, like the one in Sturgis, Michigan, uh, Sturgis, I'm sorry, Sturgis, South Dakota. And somebody yelled, hey, asshole, and everybody turned around. Now, do you turn around when people yell, hey, asshole? This is part sure? of the problem here. This is part of the problem here, because this is what Catholics do. They have internalized the commands of their oppressors, and they have made, themse they've made themselves stupid, deliberately stupid, in order to be considered good Catholics. This has to stop. We have to start standing up. Uh, we have to start educating ourselves and get, getting back, uh, making contact with the real history of our people. That's it. And that's exactly, that's exactly what I wanted to speak to you about this, because I know you'd have a lot of great answers on this topic. Again, I thank you very much, Dr. Jones, for your time. Again, Logos Rising, that's the newest book. 
and right. we recommend people get it and meeting meeting of the minds. We're happy to have yeah. you on board. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Thank you. My pleasure.